Hey everybody, it's Craig from the University of Applied Research and Development and this is one of our Veterans Stories Difference Makers episodes and I'm delighted to have Graciela Teskiri Nosato, Air Force Veteran from the USA. Hi, good morning. Good morning, Craig. Great to chat with you live. Fantastic to have you here. I know you've got a lot to share as well about your time in the service and then the transition period and then also the amazing work that you're doing with veterans now. So why don't you tell us about what motivated you to join the Air Force? It's it's the loaded question in my case, you know, um, it's quite loaded, but I'll, I'll give you the most succinct way that I can answer this question. Uh, I'm the daughter of Mexican immigrants there was absolutely no experience in my family with military service since I was the first one born here. And I was born here in here being in El Paso, Texas. And I was born about this far over the border, quarter mile. So I reflect on that because, you know, how likely is it that someone like me, who's the oldest of five kids born to Mexican immigrants, is going to end up flying for the Air Force as an officer? I mean, it's just such a leap of imagination that that would even happen. But the way it happened was basically because I kept asking a question in, in high school, and it's a question I, I give to when I mentor youth. And that question is, how can I? How can I is the magic question that has enabled me to learn how to do everything. And so the question I asked as a teenager of my counselor was, how can I go to college? I've heard it's possible in this country, but how does that happen? And my counselor, God bless her, she said, you know, my husband's family was bigger than yours. So come to my house for dinner and Wendell will tell you what he did. I think that you'll, you'll like it. And what her husband, my high school counselor's husband had done is he had gone through college on an Air Force ROTC scholarship. So okay. I got to meet an Air Force major from Appalachia. Okay. He had eight siblings. I only had four. <laughs> right. And so he told me that that's what he did. He applied for this scholarship that enabled him to go to a university of his choice that had this military officer training program. And I was so intrigued. I'm like, you mean, I'll, it's like for all four years. And he's like, yeah, all four years. And when you're done, you go in to serve as an officer. And that's what, that's how I got there. I just, you know, asking this question and, you know, the right angel mentors in the right place. It's fantastic. I think there's two things there. One is the power of a, of a teacher yeah. or a counselor to go that extra step for their students mm -hmm. and the power of questions. That's yeah, awesome. power of questions. Yeah. So tell us about some of your journey in the Air Force. Nine something years, wasn't it? Yeah. So, well, it started the first time I put the uniform on was when I got to Berkeley because I moved 1,100 miles away from my family. Again, culturally bizarro, like girls don't do that. <laughs> you stay close to home and you help with the other kids. And I said, no, I'm out of here. I got to go see who I could become. So I got to Berkeley and that's where I became a cadet. So it started there and it was four and a half years of being a cadet and actually having a university experience, um, but also learning how to become an officer, learning the leadership, practicing leadership, you know, doing the career exploration. So it really started there and meeting people in the Air Force that did a variety of careers. My major was as uh, architecture and environmental design. I went straight into the architecture school because that was my first love. And uh, basically, I, I loved that major. I would do it again, just like that. Um, but there's not a lot of architects in the Air Force, I learned. <laughs> Have you seen architects <laughs> on military bases? Not really, right? And so 
I, I share that part because I was romanticizing a career as many young people do without having ever met anybody in that. Mm. And luckily in the Air Force ROTC journey, they take you to different bases and you meet officers doing different careers. And it was a, a lieutenant, God bless her, at Vandenberg Air Force Base in Southern California who said to me, oh, so you think you're going to be an architect in the Air Force? She was very kind. And she's like, all we do in civil engineering is we don't have architects. You know, we fill potholes. Generals call and say there's a pothole in base housing. It's like, what? So at that point, I've already committed to, you know, serving four years. And so mm -hmm. she's like, you know, maybe you should look at something else. Like, well, my degree is set. You know, I'm doing that. And Greg, the very next day, the Air Force put us on a plane to go to the next career exploration at a pilot training base. Uh, in the Arizona desert. And so at Williams Air Force Base, I got a T-37 ride with a female instructor, Captain Dolly DeLisa, I'll never forget. Next angel mentor that shows up. Took me up in the T-37, we flew around, she let me fly, let me roll, let me do all kinds of crazy, wonderful stuff that I loved. And then when we came back, she says, you know, you're, you're the first person I've flown with today that hasn't thrown up. <laughs> and, because it's hot, it's July, right? And so you get these guys up here who think they want to be fighter pilots, but I'm sorry, a lot of people realize that it's something that, different, right, when they get up there. And so she's like, you're having a great time. And I'm like, this is awesome. I thought I was there for a joyride. She's like, this is something you could do. She just told me straight up, this is something you could do. You could be an aviator. You could learn to fly. Go back to Berkeley and tell the staff you want to fly. And she just told me that in a couple minutes coming mm -hmm. back taxiing back in. And so, wow, another life-changing moment, right? And so I went back mm -hmm. and sure enough, I put my name in. There's a whole board process for navigators, communication systems officers, pilots. And then the board chooses, you know, this person's going to go to pilot training, nav training, you know, systems training. And so that's how it happened. I was selected for an undergraduate navigator training position. Like the board chose me and I showed mm -hmm. up there and I was the only woman in a class of 32 and of the 32, 23 of us graduated. So there's always that, that attrition that happens. Mm. And I loved it. You know, I was super competitive. I graduated in the top 12% of my class. And wow. I chose a, a tanker to, to Fairchild Air Force Base. And it was a crew plane. And it took me all over the world, which is really what I wanted at that point. Once I knew I wasn't going to be an architect in the Air Force, then I could go fly because she told me, you know, I was halfway through ROTC. Nobody had mentioned flying yet. So tell the staff you want to fly. And that's how it happened. And I loved it. You know, I went to um, Saudi Arabia for my very first deployment. Um, had a basically flying over southern Iraq during Operation Southern Watch. And mm -hmm. my crew flew enough that we got nominated for an air medal. Wow. But it was the summer of 1992. And I wasn't supposed to be there yet because combat exclusion. And so the other three crews got their air medals and we got a letter from the Pentagon saying that this crew, Captain Waymont was my aircraft commander. Uh, Captain Waymont's crew cannot have an air medal because there's a woman on the crew. Oops. Wow. <laughs> but eventually after an appeal by our commander in Saudi Arabia, uh, after you know, right as the combat exclusion was getting lifted, they went ahead and shipped our air medals to us at our base. So we eventually got them. But I tell you that story because I was right on that cusp of almost getting a combat assignment, almost getting the F-15, but not quite there yet. So, you know, the time that I spent 
to Northern Watch, Southern Watch, going all over the Pacific, uh, serving mm -hmm. in the Bosnia War staff officer, uh, Mildenhall Air Base in outside London, all the places that I got to go is amazing. It was just an amazing life. I got embassy work in uh, South America because of my language skills. I was in mm. for about four and a half months. Um, they needed somebody with wings that could speak Spanish, could go hang out with Ecuadorian military and schmooze and um, you know, help contractors come in and install things. It was really, it was a lot of variety. I worked for NATO, uh, got to live in uh, Vicenza, Italy and work for NATO on the battle staff there. So it was in the airplane, but I always sought out those other assignments because, wow, what, what opportunities. Mm. Tell us some more about being in Italy, what you did there. Yeah, so this one came, this was actually before Ecuador. So this was a requisition that said that we need uh, rated officers, so get aeronautical rating, um, that speak at least one other language to preferably to work in a NATO environment with basically all the NATO countries were there. And this is during the um, the Sarajevo conflict over Bosnia-Herzegovina. So I spoke Spanish and I was learning Italian and I was eh, semi-fluent in Italian, but enough that I could go to Italy for four months. And so I was selected to go be the battle staff officer and I was in charge of the Combined Air Operations Center. The, acronym we call CAOC. And what that meant was that I had phones to all the airfields that we controlled in the area of responsibility and could pick up a phone and close and open an airport, you know, as needed. Uh, evacuate. Mm -hmm. um, my favorite, wow, I can't even believe that happened, was some Norwegian soldiers were playing with smoke grenades in their tent and they exploded. And these guys were severely injured. And I basically mm -hmm. had to go to the NATO board and see all our planes coming in because we controlled them in real time. We could see the blips coming in and out to all the airfields. So it's, you know, like right. when you see movies of military people controlling military operations, that's what it was. And so I basically had to see who's coming in, who's going out, what planes we have. And then I walked over to the Greek colonel. I said, sir, you're, you have a C-130 about to land at split. Can I redirect it over here to Sarajevo? Got to get some Norwegians out. He's like, do what you need to do, Captain. Okay. So I just move airplanes, send the, you know, over here, call the tower, air traffic control, reroutes the plane, get on the ground, pick up the injured Norwegians. Two out of three survived. We took them directly to the oh. base in uh, Ramstein, but one of them died on the way. So stuff like that. Like, <laughs> what am I doing? Right. It was amazing. The, the amount of responsibility and just mm -hmm. the variety of problem solving and leadership and, and working cross-culturally. That was my favorite thing, just cross-cultural workforce from all the countries. Wow. Yeah. So tell us about that. That must have meant a lot to you. You must have really enjoyed it. Um, to your, you know, your second family, the transition time, leaving the military and going into civilian life. What was that like? Yeah. Well, you know, I'm always a believer that if your talents are no longer appreciated, it's time to go find yourself a new place where you're appreciated. That's my belief. Always had it. Uh, I've been surrounded by pretty awesome women that made that clear. And there came a point where I had not been able to move away from my base where my husband and I were stationed. He's a civilian. Um, we were up at Fairchild Air Force Base and we've been there the whole time. And after my training, I came up and there we were the whole time. And I'm like, I thought we were supposed to move. <laughs> I thought we were supposed to bounce around the world. Um, and he's Japanese. So we we're trying to go to Okinawa, Japan. Let's go find the Pacific mm. for a while. 
but we were severely undermanned and in an operational base where the job is to fly the airplanes when your manning is down to 76 percent of the navigators that you're supposed to have nobody got to leave anywhere so yeah. the only way that you could ever leave the base you're just going to basically be there forever doing the same thing was to leave to separate and I tried to negotiate, well, if you, if you let me go to Okinawa, I'll stay. No, no, I can't let you go. <laughs> so it just, it got ridiculous, Craig. And I was about six months from my major's board. I had finished my master's degree. I'd been to squadron officer school. I had all the international deployments. I had an air medal. All signs are pointing to I'm going to be a major. But I, I talked to my uh, supervisor, the major, and I said, so when I make major, what happens? Do I get to move? He says, yeah, they're going to move you straight to headquarters of the command. So you'll be in Illinois at Scott Air Force Base. I'm like, no, I'm here to fly. I just want to fly somewhere else. I'm like, nope, when you make major, they want you to do staff duty because then you have to go be a colonel. And I'm like, so basically you, you look at the career path ahead and it's not what I want and they're not letting me move. And so it was time to go. Mm -hmm. So it was a very, very intentional decision-making, right? About the time to go. Challenges. I'd say the biggest challenge is the incredible self-doubt that you suddenly find yourself in. And even though I had this group of incredible women that were my, what I like to say, my, my civilian transition assistance program, I was in a group of 30 women who were all in the Spokane community and we'd all been doing a conference together. So I've been networking uh, with the community, organizing a math and science conference for girls. So I had a lot of women in my network who I'd organized as speakers for this conference. So they were all like, okay, you need to stop. <laughs> you're like high energy and you can do anything, but you don't know anything about what's out here. And you need to just stop and do informational interviews and see where you fit, right? Because mm. the truth was that they basically told me straight up, you know nothing about the civilian workforce. Like you don't know what's out here for you. And if you just take a job, you're gonna be miserable. I don't know if you know the statistic, Greg, but something like 50% of veterans do not make it to the first year in the first job they take after they leave. Wow. It is very bad. And I think something like 70 or 80% don't make it to year two because the match was bad. Right. They right. just took a job versus what I was guided here is like they literally made me stop because, you know, my my fear and it was the, the loss of identity and the, the doubt that I'm talking about. I mean, that was hmm. the worst thing for me is, you know, people are like, well, how could you have any doubt that anyone's going to hire you? You know, you've done this and this and you have a master's. I'm like, no, you don't understand. <laughs> I, I'm at this place where I'm like, I did all that. But who cares out here? And I did all that. But is anybody going to ever hire me ever again? I remember having those really creepy thoughts, you know, hmm. even though you have all the credentials and stuff. And I don't laugh at it now because I remember how, how deep and how dark that was to like really doubt that anyone's going to hire you because um, hmm. you just get in your own head and you realize hmm. that whatever titles and whatever projects and medals that you had doesn't mean anything anymore. You're starting in this new world and you have no idea way to go so that's what i mean about loss of identity deep deep self-doubt and it was those women who basically just said stop you know do the self-assessment and that's one of the most important tips that i want to leave for your audience is stop 
don't don't be looking for jobs don't be applying for jobs you know if you have to work and get a paycheck right away then please start two years before doing this work that i'm describing so that when you get out you're not learning what you don't know after you're out that's the worst place to be mm. i started six months early you know with the informational interviews and stuff but that those numbers they don't lie you know like how how badly we match up to work because we don't do the self-assessment and so these ladies stopped me and they said self-assessment who are you what do you care about like do you want to be in a big organization the little one do you want to lead do you want to be in a small team big team do you want to do spreadsheets or do you want to be writing and presenting like who are you and when you know those things first about yourself then you can match better with all the options that are out there but we don't mm-hmm. we don't train our our veterans that way we just like go resumes 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 <laughs> go get a job and then we have this horrible outcome overall for our community you know the unemployment and then the the bad matching um so i think all of those things were challenges for me but i was very lucky that i had that network that had right. grown over all the years of community work that didn't ever let me get to the despair place where i see a lot of my fellow veterans go yeah it seems really clear from what you're saying that 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 transition period can be horrible Ah. and the best thing that someone can do is to plan a couple of years out build their network external to the service and start doing what you said those informational interviews and assessing who am i where do i want to be and who do i need to be with asking those hard questions well before the time because the service is not going to do it for you there is a very deep, dark truth that people don't know. And I only know this because of the space that I'm in, the work that I'm doing. But there's this program that we have to do when we are exiting. And the Transition Assistance Program, and it's been in place forever. The key word there is congressionally mandated curriculum. That's what they talk about. They're only required to teach the congressionally mandated curriculum. So whatever Congress has decided that military people need to know before they leave the military, that's what they teach, which has nothing to do with, you know, new industries that have been created, new ways of working, new skills that you need to be working online, um, people skills, you know, all the different things that we hire for personality, <laughs> right? In addition to skill, none of that's in there because it's only congressionally mandated curriculum. And so that gets taught, but, you know, just like it was when I got out and it's, it's happening to the vets that are getting out right now who I end up teaching when they're in schools, that has never changed. You know, it's, it's, it's always not good enough because the, the key to all of it is, and you heard me say this, I had this whole tribe of women Mm. and too many times, too many times. And this is very, very important. If you find yourself in the transition, you know, a few months out, you know, you, you got a year ago, now you're a few months out. Now you're a couple months out. If you're still doing this alone, if, you, if you're trying to be the tough guy, and I'm speaking to the guys, because it's the guys. The guys want to be tough guys, and they want to look like they've got it all figured out. And they don't. And those guys that are insisting on doing it by themselves, those are the ones that just have the hardest time. It is everybody mm-hmm. else who is figuring out that I got to go on LinkedIn, even though I'm just getting a you know, basic profile. I got to get in there and start engaging. I have to be known to people. I need to like see what's out there. I need to actually just look for Air Force veterans in healthcare. Just go look for people that you have something in common with and just start talking to them. Right. But so many people don't. 
they just don't want to look like they don't know what they're doing. And it's mm. very dangerous because then you end up wasting time, energy, and then you upload 500 resumes to servers and you actually think you're applying for jobs. And then nobody calls you and then you get really depressed and you think you're worth nothing. When in fact, you didn't actually do anything. You just put resumes on servers and nobody ever saw it because you didn't really know what you're doing. And it's the tribe, the tribe, the tribe, the tribe. You know, we hold hands and we, we help you out and we connect you with somebody that we already know that is hiring UX researchers. I'm doing that right now for a veteran. Like, oh, you want some US researcher hire, uh, recruiters? I know some, so I'm connecting, okay? But it's never being alone. That is so important. Mm. I'd love for you to share with us um, your amazing experience with the WeWork as a, an entrepreneur in residence and also the work that you're doing with veterans now. Yeah, so I was really lucky to get um, to find out about that program. And it's basically a partnership with WeWork that has the buildings and the Bunker Labs that has the nonprofit that brings together veteran entrepreneurs. So Bunker, I think Lab. Bunker Labs, yes. So Bunker Labs is a nonprofit that brings together startups and also veterans who are growing their businesses. Um, mm. So think of it as an incubator and an accelerator. And they partnered with WeWork so that we could actually have space to meet and actually be in a cohort with other veterans. Mm. So at 15 American cities where WeWork has buildings, we get to come together 10 at a time for six months at a time and just network with each other. Because again, it's, it's about the tribe, right? Uh, and it's mm. like, okay, so what are you looking for? Well, I'm creating a coaching program that does this and this and this. Okay, well, then I happen to be doing a coaching program for university. So why didn't I bring you with me, right? So we help each other out like that. And then we have a community of all the Bunker Labs entrepreneurs that have been in the program. And we have a group on LinkedIn. So it's just awareness of all the veteran entrepreneurs that have been part of this program. It's super, super awesome. And then we get to meet um, corporate contacts, you know, in San Francisco, which is where I went. We get to host events and actually do like not so much a pitch contest, but like a kind of like a pitch contest where we introduce our companies in three minutes and we have actual investors in the room. OK, um, I actually ended up getting funded out of an event where I met a guy at one of these events who brought me to another event for a $10,000 prize, which I didn't win. I missed by one point, but one of the judges got me funded. Okay. So the awesome. networking that you do as a veteran community is amazing. So while I was there, we had Veterans Day um, come around. It's like August to February. And they picked five of us who were enrolled in the cohorts across the country. They selected five of us, and then they actually brought production crews out to us to tell our stories. And that video that you saw, the WeWork video, it's on YouTube on the WeWork channel. Very emotional because they, they got down to some, they came to my house. <laughs> the cameraman came on the train with me and then he came into my car and then we went to my school, my kid's school to pick him up. <laughs> really, it was a day in the life of a veteran entrepreneur mother. And, and then they put the whole thing together about the why. It's really the why story, why I do the work that I do. Um, and, you know, I like to say it this way succinctly. I'm a bilingual storyteller who teaches other veterans how to become epic storytellers of their value. And what do I mean by that? Well, I have some props. I'm a bilingual storyteller because a few years ago, my son saw me in my flight suit the night before Veterans Day and started pulling off the patches and asking questions. And that led to the first ever bilingual children's book, Where Moms Find a Jet. 
and it's in English and Spanish, and it's basically my story. It's inspired by that bedtime conversation. And then a couple of years later, we took the main character, little Marco, out to the plane for a tour of the KC-135, which is the plane that I served on. So I've taken my military service story and turned it into this children's uh, literature to inspire kids to fly in English and Espanol, two languages, something that has never been done before. And I'm really proud of that. And the third book, mm -hmm. uh, Taking Flight with Captain Mama, we're taking the story airborne and that's coming out this fall. So that was like inspired by my son. But the whole time I was doing that work, I was running my educational publishing company. I got a call from an army veteran in Baltimore. And she called me and she says, Graciela, my name is Dolly, Dolly Rivera, and I'm a student at Towson. I see you online, all the things that you're doing. And I don't know how you do it, but you never sound like you're bragging. Can you come out here and teach us student veterans how to talk about ourselves? Because we don't mm -hmm. like to talk about ourselves. That was another challenge in the transition. Like, how do you talk about yourself when you've never had to? Right? You just get scored, you get your performance review, right? Might have to tell your commander, oh yeah, I did that thing. But you never have to promote yourself. You're in the military, right? So it's this weird world. So because of that phone call from that student veteran, I flew out to Towson University and I said, it sounds like you need a personal branding workshop to learn how to communicate your value to the different audiences. Yeah, you're trying to go to grad school, you're trying to start a business, you're trying to get a job. Everybody's got a different audience, but the personal branding process, which is really something I invented using the marketing skills that I, you, that I got working for corporate marketing when I transitioned, because that's what I did, by the way. <laughs> All those women that were guiding me, I ended up uh, in Silicon Valley in the global marketing role, telecommunications industry. Wow. Exactly what I said I wanted to do after I figured out what that was, and exactly what the recruiters told me I'd never be able to do because I didn't have the experience, right? But I did that. And so I got to do corporate marketing. You know the company Siemens, headquartered mm. in Munich? Mm. Yeah, that's who hired me for the language skills, for the international savvy experience, the cross-cultural work that I had done. Siemens is like, come on over. I know you can learn the technology. And so I took those marketing skills, created the workshop for the student veterans, taught them, but then I made a very specific choice. I said, okay, if I go there and I lecture on personal branding, they're still not going to do it because it's just information. What I mm -hmm. need to do is create an actual process so that when they're mm -hmm. done, their branding is in front of them. It's done. Mm -hmm. And so the workshops that I've created, I call them authentic personal branding for military veterans and spouses. Uh, that's what I've been teaching at lots of universities and colleges coast to coast. The state of California hired me to take this professional development content on the road to eight cities in California. It's wow. the Veteran Affairs Agency in California, CalVet. And I've taught over 5,000, I think we're going on 6,000 now, veterans you know, that are served by the veteran serving organizations and the universities. And it's incredible because then they suddenly they stand up and, and they read these brands that they came up with and they can't even believe what they're saying, right? Um, and then during the pandemic, I created an online course and then here's the book brand before your resume it's your marketing guide for vets military service members entering civilian life and you see how brand is an acronym craig hmm. veterans you know military people love acronyms right so i decided to go with that and what brand means it's right here on the back it's become relevant authentic noticeable and differentiated say that one more time please 
become relevant, authentic, noticeable, and differentiated before your resume. Love so it. it's the idea that you have to intrigue first and then people will be like, wow, tell me more about that. And do you have a resume? Cause my cousin's hiring versus that you don't know how to do that. And you're just uploading mm. resumes all day and getting depressed. Right. Mm. And what I decided to do is I decided to take an entire page in the book and feature 30 different examples of personal branding created by veterans. So of all the people that I've taught, I have pictures of their postcards. I have videos of them practicing and I just chose 30 really amazing ones and just featured them in the book. Again, something that's never been done before in literature. So I'm really, really proud of that work because if there's anything that inspires military veterans during the transition, it's the success stories of other military veterans. Yes. Yep. And we need more of that. And that's yes. why I do this work. Graciela, just as we as we wrap up, I do want to say thank you for your service and thank you for what you're doing right now is incredible work. And just as we wrap up, um, tell us how people can get hold of you. Your LinkedIn um, link is actually with the show notes on YouTube, or Facebook, LinkedIn. But what, what else? How else can people get hold of you? Well, I would say for military families, the easiest way is CaptainMama.com. That's the children's book site. There's a nice creators contact us page that's easy to find there. And for anybody that's in the service, and I'm not going to say transitioning military because you're in the service and you are, you're already transitioning. You don't even know it yet. Okay. Every day that you get closer to retirement or every day you get closer to the day you're getting out, that's, that's the day that you're closer, but you're already transitioning. I just hope that you're transitioning intentionally versus letting it happen to you. And for that community, for anybody in service, you know, in uniform now, or for somebody who knows somebody who's serving, is the sooner you can understand the craft of personal branding, the sooner you can get yourself promoted inside the service or mm. selected for a special duty assignment. Okay. And then when you get out, then you're just using your personal branding skills you already have to do the first civilian transition. So I encourage people to visit brandbeforeyourresume.com and learn about that work that I'm doing to, like I said earlier, turn military veterans and spouses into epic storytellers of their own value. That's so important. And the sooner you can learn it, the less stress you're gonna have on the back end. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for being with us. Please don't go anywhere as I wrap up, Gracie. I'd love to have a chat with you after the show. And for the rest of you, we look forward to seeing you again on our next Veteran Stories. One of the things that Graciela mentioned was all those skills and talents and abilities that you develop in the service or you brought into the service with you that get refined. We were established as a university to recognize those skills and talents and enable you to gain a bachelor degree or a graduate degree faster cheaper with less tuition fees so that your family can benefit from the benefits that you are due to your service as well so we look forward to seeing you again on another veteran stories thanks for being with us thank you for uplifting our stories craig thank you so much thank you